0: Welcome to another episode of the Run Tell This Podcast. I'm former senior magazine editor Keith Reed, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavo-Campo. This week, we're joined by Sonny Hostin, Emmy Award-winning legal journalist, co-host of The View, and author of the new memoir, I Am These Truths. Today, we ask the question, Sonny for president? Does our friend the legal analyst and journalist have political aspirations? Plus, should black coworkers be sharing our salaries with one another? And why some white folks just refuse to wear masks during this pandemic? But before we get started, I want to dedicate this episode to the memory of my mother, Yvonne Reed, who would have turned 66 years old today. She lost her battle with breast cancer seven years ago. Please, if you're listening, make sure the women in your lives are both healthy and protected. Enjoy the episode.
1: I'm so glad you're here. You you are my ride or die. I hope you know that. When you If you ever need somebody to drive off a cliff with you, I'll be like, okay, Sunny, let me take a bite of my kids. <laughs> and I'll be right there. <laughs> you know how the
2: feeling is mutual. I adore... Wait
0: a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because I... I, I, I appreciate the love fest because that's what this show is all about. Like all, all of us, you know, journalistic types, spreading the love. But I just need to know, like, if she's ready to drive off a cliff and say bye to her kids, what you got on her?
1: Sunny knows where all the bodies are buried.
0: <laughs> what do you know, and where did it happen? That's 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 what I'm trying to find other. out. <laughs> I'm sure.
1: Some other fun news, Wes. You have a big uh, article coming out tomorrow. I do. Got
3: a big piece that drops, but it'll be out by the time anyone's listening to this. But yes, uh, for the GQ Man of the Year uh, issue, I've got the Trevor Noah cover story. So that's gonna be it's gonna be exciting. Um, We did. So we spent we must have spent four or five hours together. I spent time with him up in New York. All all of our interviews were during coronavirus, and then zoomed a bunch and talked to a ton of his family and friends and folks, and uh, just trying to get at you know his unique role in this moment. That here we are like grappling with race and racism again. Uh, we're grappling with an international pandemic, and here we have this biracial black guy from somewhere else hosting The Daily Show. Like, in some ways, he's, you know, really kind of custom fit for this moment. We try to talk through that a lot. There's a lot of like media criticism in there and some politics and a little bit of everything.
1: Did he have any thoughts on kind of this moment of racial reckoning, given that his country went through something similar prior? Yeah. No, so it was really
3: interesting. One of the questions I asked him actually in our first interview is I asked him if he could ever see the United States going through like a a truth and reconciliation process the way South Africa did. And he was pretty adamant. He's like, no way, it's not going to happen. I was like, well, why do you think that, you know, uh, play that out for me? And there were a few things he said, you know, one of the first things he said was, you know, unlike South Africa, when the white people here lost, they never had to like publicly admit that they lost. The South still basically argued that this was all unfair to them. And, that you know, there was a different moment versus South Africa when apartheid fell. It was it was it was kind of like everyone knew you were the bad guys. You did this thing. And then the second thing he said was that, you know, one thing that's so hard is that other, unlike South Africa, where all of this was so recent, everyone alive was going through it in the States, all of this is relative history and that it's impossible to get people to apologize or feel bad for something that they themselves did not do. <laughs> and so he and so the reality would be were us to go through it, we basically have to say, well, you know, the United States built this system, exploited this labor and exploited these people. Here are the winners. Here are the losers. And there's not actually much incentive for white America to do that. Because a lot of white Americans go, well, that wasn't me.
0: Why are we doing this? What's the point of this? And so yeah, it was, yeah. except except for the fact that the reality is that all of these things are present in with us right now. I mean, like that, like the 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 big, the big con and all these discussions in in racism and the thing that that the sixteen nineteen project laid bare so so thoroughly, um, and a lot of Ta-Nehisi Coates work uh, before that laid bare so thoroughly is 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 that these things are present there's a thread right like this is not some far off thing that happened that you can say well you know i didn't do it it was my ancestors or it wasn't my ancestors it was people 150 years ago these are things that like people are getting killed today by police officers with with no recourse people are people are being disenfranchised today uh by by politicians current sitting senators uh you know but like these are not things that are steeped in some long ago system that we abandoned uh, with, the, with the Civil Rights Acts in the 1960s. These are things that, that continue. And so, people are
1: still benefiting, too. People aren't just people still, are still suffering. Benefiting. People are still benefiting. So that kind of that inequality that exists is still very much a vestige of the system of slavery because there are families who have generational wealth. There are businesses that are still enjoying the wealth that was built on the system of slavery. So it is disingenuous to say that, oh, it has nothing to do with me, when you're still you know, reaping the benefits.
3: Certainly. But, you know, but we see this. Like, we, we, we see this come up in the conversation often, right? Where, like, isn't this history, isn't this, my family came over as Irish immigrants or Italian immigrants. We weren't the, you know, that, that you know, I think we all kind of agree intellectually on the fallacy of those arguments. And also, you know, the reality still remains. Any conversation about race in the states is a conversation where, for it to be effective, the majority of people who are white have to participate in it, right? We all can have this conversation among ourselves forever and still be broke. (laughs) That's where (laughs) we're at, right? (laughs) And and so it is kind of an interesting, you know, So, so again, I mean, I think that, I'm trying to think now, like in the Trevor context. Did did
2: Trevor feel that there was not an appetite, not even for, you know, half of the country for reparations or truth and reconciliation?
3: Yeah, I think that that was, I mean, I think that was kind of his thought on it was that there just isn't that, that, that just, they're not going to do it. <laughs> that, that not, and, and look, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a critic and a cynic and I, I don't necessarily disagree, right? I could argue why we should and all, you know, but if, 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 what his point is that I don't trust the white people to do it, well, I, I don't have a great counter argument.
1: Yeah. Huh. Well, I can't wait to read it. You said he's man of the year.
3: Yes. And so the three people of the year are Megan Thee Stallion, George Clooney, and Trevor and Trevor Noah. And so the Megan piece came out Monday. George uh, Clooney's piece came out Tuesday, which is while we're taping. And then, um, and then tomorrow, Wednesday, is the Trevor piece drops.
1: That's great. I can't wait to see it. I just want to talk about COVID quickly because I feel right. like it's Groundhog Day. I remember in March um, hearing the sirens nonstop, and then it went away, you know, because New York thanks to I think really strong leadership, people can take their issues with Cuomo, but I felt very comfortable with him at the helm, and the numbers reflected that. Is that another siren? yep see
3: see i'm I'm getting them I don't know what you're talking about not getting the siren right
1: well, now they came Here in the back district to New
3: York
1: <laughs> now I'm hearing them again, so it feels like I'm in this nightmare because they went away and there was this very tangible, clear sign of progress where I'm not hearing sirens 24-7 and now I'm starting to hear them much more frequently. It's this very kind of real world measure of COVID. Um, so one of the things that I did in March was I started doing all this reading on past pandemics because I really wanted to know like what's what's ahead for us? What's our future look like? I like, just
2: watched movies, scary movies.
1: About movies. <laughs> I, I watched all the pandemic movies, all of yes, them. Sir, but, but Mar- like Contagion and Outbreak.
3: Of course. Mm-hmm. When I was watching even like movies that were kind of like I rewatched Castaway, right? Because we were all like alone in our house. So like it was like a pandemic movie, but it, it fit in. Anyway, go. You were talking about serious stuff.
1: Uh, No, Castaway, by the way, is one of my favorite movies ever. And I think we can all understand now why he was so devastated when Wilson floated away.
3: They shouldn't have done that to Wilson.
1: They should not. They did Wilson dirty. So I'm reading about these past pandemics and I'm reading about the pandemic of 1918. And it was an article about when did it end? And of course, there's the kind of scientific end where you've eradicated the health threat. But what's interesting is they made a distinction between that and kind of the societal end. And societally, the pandemic ended when people got sick of it. So nothing changed with infection rates or death rates. People just got sick of it, and they decided they were gonna accept the risk and start living their lives again. And that's when they started going out, doing the things they always did. And the pandemic continued for quite some time after that, but that is one measure of it being over. I feel like we're there now. Sonny. you think we're in pandemic fatigue where people are going to go to Thanksgiving with grandma and maybe I'll get sick, maybe I won't, maybe she will, maybe she won't? Listen, I I think there's no question that there's pandemic fatigue, right? We've been doing
2: this since at least March, some of us a little earlier, those that were in the know. Um, But I I don't think that that is going to uh, end this pandemic. Because I, I actually think the reverse is true. I mean, we're seeing the surge and, and this resurgence of, of the virus uh, and all of these spikes because people won't take personal responsibility. Uh, they won't wear masks, they won't social distance, um, they won't, I guess, the nasty ones are not washing their hands. Um, so, um, you know, my, my sense is that uh, the pandemic fatigue makes the virus last longer. And kills more people, and it's just it's just worse. And quite frankly, if you look at some of the states, uh, I don't want to call all of them out, but uh, you know
1: they've uh, just been not personally responsible for quite a while, quite a long time. I can't remember which state this was in. I think South Dakota, but don't quote me on it. Um, there was a mask mandate, and the sheriff's office put out a notice that they were not going to enforce the mask mandate. And I thought to myself, where do they do that at? Like law enforcement, like they don't create laws, they enforce them that by definition, that's what they do. How can they refuse to enforce a mandate that's been put in place? Well, they're not supposed to, of course. Um, And I I think, though, uh,
2: there's been the case, again, that people are flouting the law, um, just willy nilly these days, right? And it comes kind of from the top. It's like truth is not the truth, fact is not the fact, law is not the law I, I've never seen actually this kind of lawless behavior in my life coming from the top, even coming from the justice department, which is I'm an alum of the Justice Department. I have never seen anything like this in my life
0: so one of the, that that's actually I'm glad you got to that point because one of the things that we've talked about in our episodes going through the uh, through the election season was that this the current administration has done so much to erode. Like you see, you see the president t- tweeting law and order, you know, and in all in, in all caps and yet consistently undercutting, not just the law itself, but all of the norms and all of the structures that, that are supposed to uphold society and make it and make it function. So it's not just, you know, did the president break the law, but it's are the laws being enforced. Is the law this elastic thing that we've seen? A, a great piece, actually, one of, one of our past guests, uh, Karen Atia from, from Washington Post, had a piece this week that talked about how, how American media would cover the current election if it happened in another country, right? And, just, and, and, and I think that's instructive because it kind of talks about, like, in another country, we would talk about this, the elasticity of the law, in the way that the, that the current administration, the way that the government, the way that police departments, uh, the way that law enforcement have been, have gotten really comfortable being very selective about what they enforce and what they don't enforce at this particular, and, and who they enforce it at, at, against, right? And I think that your point is, <laughs> I think that your point is, is, is very well taken that like the mask mandates are a very, like here's this administration and not just the administration, but like the entire, one entire side of the political spectrum in this country has always talked about being law and order, has always talked about uh, about the need for the rule of law, has always talked about respecting law enforcement, has always talked about, you know, up- upholding the principles that the country was founded on and the principles that the country is governed on. And then, and then when something happened that wasn't politically expedient for them, it, be- it became all bets are off. I don't have to. One of the
2: reasons I went into the law is because I I certainly had a bit of a chaotic childhood. And for me, the law uh, provided structure, right? Um, And it's not supposed to be that elastic. There were rules, and people are supposed to abide by those rules. And the law is supposed to be meted out evenly. Now, we know that that is not necessarily the case. We know about systemic racism, we know about selective prosecution, we know all those things. But generally we have not seen it coming from the government itself from the very tippy tippy top of the government. so the, I think the elasticity and how about the folks that are marching with guns to state houses um, because they're, they're they feel
1: oppressed because they, they're being forced to wear a mask right What is that about what is, what is that about? I've been trying to figure out what this is about What is the big problem with being? Asked to wear a mask.
2: Well, what's interesting is the arguments that I hear, and I I have some friends that are that are far right. I wouldn't well acquaintances, and when I ask that, it's all about self determination, personal responsibility. Don't tell me what to do. Yet in an, in another setting, those same people will tell women what to do
1: with their bodies. They will tell uh, black people what to do. Wes, you're writing a book on white supremacists, so I'm hoping maybe you have an insight uh, into the. Know? Into the mind of the white supremacist, um, because there seems to be a complete absence of logic here. It's the same way that people are saying, "No, Trump won this election because there was fraud." However, we trust the congressional results, so you know we can say that all the people we wanted to win actually won. However, Trump lost, and that was fraud. So there's this absence of of reason. It's not even an attempt to reason. What is that about?
3: Especially with the mask stuff, there's a sense of almost kind of martyrdom that, you know, people like pe- narratively, people like to be put upon, right? The government's coming from me, taking my things, restricting my rights and my freedoms. and and so you have this group of people who statistically, demographically are not the victims of this moment, <laughs> right that that uh, that that the reality is, on average, the, the life of a white American is statistically better off than the lives of other folks. That's not to say there aren't hardships. I mean, coronavirus has been tough on everybody and business owners of all time. You know, all that stuff is true, right? And also, you know, you, but you take that that group of folks and you have, like Sonny was talking about, The kind of demographic destiny of the country, what's happening and their fears about what's happening, uh, the elevate, and, and also then the. What happens or what comes downstream of the ongoing integration of our popular culture and in different places is suddenly Ava uh, DiVernay gets to make movies and Barry Jenkins does too, and there are members of Congress like Alan Omar, or AOC, and, and then the president's a black guy with a funny name for a long time, that there is a... There is something disorienting about this group of, you know, for this group of people. They think the country has changed or is leaving them behind in some way. And so suddenly they're just like, you know, they're battling on every hill, yep. <laughs> right? Like, it's not even about the logic of the specific thing. It's things are changing and I don't like it. And yep. so mask. <laughs> or, 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 you know, or the secret child pedophile, you know, it's just like, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, because conspiracy theory is, is, is it, it's a, you know, it's two things, right? It's a, it's a means of explaining things that are difficult to explain, whatever that is. And also, it's a means of people, people who've studied conspiracies say, it's a means of people feeling self-important, right? They're the hero of the movie. They're the person who's figured it all out, and they've got to save humanity, and everyone else doesn't. And and so we see this in this moment, is that you can kind of, you become the hero of the show if you are the last cultural Americans trying to hold on to your last rights and your freedoms, and the oppressive government's trying to make you wear masks, and, and AOC's going to be the president, and they, all the movies are about about black trans women and what am I going to be like that and clearly none of those things are true
2: but but they feel that
0: yeah it so I actually think that's a that's a really good transition to to why one of the reasons why why you're here because this I brought it I brought it with me because this is because this is fantastic got it got to plug it got to plug it got to plug it Sonny wrote a memoir I am these truths uh, and one of the things that you talk about in the memoir is this concept of, of having a, a, a duality in terms of in terms of identity uh, and, and how that's followed you through careers in, in law and in and in media and and how it relates to the current moment.
2: I've had to do a lot of self-reflection, especially when you're when you're writing a book about your life. Um, and what I realized ultimately is that, you know, people always wanted to kind of classify me. Uh, like the what is she? And while there are a lot of people today that look like me, of course, I was, uh, my parents got married in 68. So they got married just one year after the loving decision when interracial mm. couples were allowed to be married. And my mother is not only Puerto Rican, she's a Spanish Jew. Um, so from Spain, which Spaniards are European. So you know, I I, I realize now that um, their marriage was so unusual at the time. A year after loving, because uh, my mom is a fair-haired, you know, light-eyed, white-looking woman, um, even though she identifies as black.
0: So that's all. Nother- your your mother's a. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me stop. Because Let me. Let me. Let me. Your, your, your mother. Yes. Is, is a Puerto Rican. Spanish Jew, like a Jew Rivera. who identifies as black.
2: Yes, she does. There,
0: there <laughs>
2: I write about it in my book because she, was, she's, she's, she went through so much as a woman who married a black man. What, what was interesting to me uh, when I went through this self um, reflection was that's why I think people always wanted to identify me because I was kind of a unicorn. And what I also realized is that people want to know what you are in order to decide who they think you are so that they can justify how they're gonna treat you. And um, I think that that applies across the board right now. And it is in stark relief almost for all the world to see, right? And it especially was in stark relief um, in what we saw with the election with the Cubans. Because I think the one thing that unifies black folks and and the black vote is that we have this unique singular experience as black people here in the United States. It doesn't matter if you're the black orthopedic surgeon or the black bus driver, there are people that are going to treat you the same exact way, right? Because of the color of your skin. Um, And, and, you know, that comes from the one drop rule, I think a vestige of that. But with Latinos, Latinos, um they have they don't have that bind uh that that tie um that we have and that is why and and they also there's also a significant problem with colorism and anti-blackness in the the latin the latino community latinx community hispanic community however you want to call it um that no one wants to talk about but i'm Perfectly willing to talk about it as an Afro Latina who has dealt with that nonsense my whole life. Um, mm. I, I think that because they don't have that tie and because they can blend in with society mm. and because um, of the anti black sentiment, they are more likely to vote not in a block, um, but vote disparately for their own selfish um, advancement, right? So if you if you can whiteface, um th- then then perhaps you're more comfortable in that space and you're more accepted in that space and you think you can ascend in that space.
3: It was interesting listening to you talk about that uh, because what popped into my mind is you were talking about the diversity within Latinos, Hispanics, whatever term we're using in this context, right? Um, and I was thinking about, you know, I, I had I read a piece, I think George Packer wrote it in The Atlantic uh, a little, a few days ago um, and he was talking kind of about what we take out of the Trump uh, showing in the election that
2: I have that I, I have to read that. I have
3: a magazine. You know, and that even if, you know, Biden clearly wins, but look, still, what, 70 million people or however many vote for Trump, that there are increases, and we've talked on the show a lot about, you know, potential increases in black support, no matter how marginal that is, and then also the sizable sizable part of uh, the Hispanic vote. And I want to ask you about that because, you know, Packer, if I remember correctly, you've got the pieces, so you'll read it and come back and tell us I got it all wrong. but... If I remember correctly, I remember kind of being frustrated because he used that to suggest that race it proves that racism couldn't have been the thing that prompted all these people because look at all these brown voters voting for him. So I wanted to drill in with you for a second uh, about kind of how you think racism or racial prejudices show up even in minority spaces, right?
2: But with the Latino community in particular and the Hispanic community in particular, um, I'm convinced, quite frankly, that a lot of it boils down to race. Uh, mm-hmm. People are saying that it boils down to socialism. You know. And I tweeted this out a couple of days ago, they interviewed a Trump supporter, a Latina Cuban Trump supporter. And she said that she voted for Trump because Biden is a socialist. When asked, what is your definition of, of socialism? Um, And this is all on video, which is interesting. She said, well, I mean, socialism means you betray your country and your community, your race, because Biden isn't black. I mean, that was actually (laughs) her definition of socialism. And she said something like, you know, he's white. Has he not looked in the mirror?
0: I don't.
2: She's basically calling him a nigger lover. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. And so... You know, when people want to say that the messaging from Republicans to the Cuban community and to the Latino community um, uh, was effective because it was about socialism, let's be clear. A part of that messaging was Black people are going to be given more than you. Mm. That was the messaging in South Florida um, on a loop over and over and over again, black people who don't deserve it are going to do better than you. And I can't recall who said it. I think it was I think it was LBJ who said, "You know, a white man will open up his pockets if he feels that he is better than one other group." And so I think you have that mentality, unfortunately, that uh, happens when you have immigrants come in from. Uh, Hispanic communities, whether they be Cuban or Venezuelan or Argentinian, um, that they would like to be on a higher rung than at least black people. And Republicans were very effective in that messaging
1: yeah and that's a very that's a very old game and that's a very american game you know because people are not white until they get to america they are italian they are german they are spanish they are polish and when they get to america they get homogenized as white because at least you're better than black people at least you're better than somebody because if you know when italians got to this country they were the lowest rung of the ladder because a lot of times they were the darkest and they had the curliest hair. Like Wes, you could pass for Sicilian any day of the week.
2: Yes, you can, (laughs) I've been to Sicily.
1: And then they come to to the United States, they don't wanna be treated like that. So what happens one generation, two generations, you have this assimilation into white culture because now I'm white, I'm not on the lowest rung of the immigrants. I remember somebody asking me once if I considered myself a woman first or black first. And, and I answered instantly, I'm Black first. Because I, I really f- have not felt that I've had the time to think about being a woman because I've been so busy dealing with being <laughs> Black. Yeah. Have you had to think about that in terms of your racial identity? Are you Latina first or Black first?
2: Well, I and by the way, I answered that question the same way that you did when we were on that thread. You know, um, I, I, uh, I, I said, I'm Black before I'm a woman. I don't have the privilege. Of being able to say, well, I'm a woman. I, I have always rejected um, people trying to force me to choose one over the other. And um, I, I've been doing that since I was
1: a child. Yeah. Um, the book, when I was reading it, I couldn't help but be reminded of uh, Dreams from My Father. Mm-hmm. And when I was it's watching.
2: A huge so thank you.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. And I hope people will take that to heart and buy it and read it. Um, and when I was watching election coverage, um, over this, you know, this course, of this season, and I was watching Senator Harris on that stage, she was definitely giving me Sunny Hostin vibes as well. So my question to you is such an impressive person. You ever think about running for office? <sighs> That's a tough question. You know, I have worked in
2: government, um, uh, for quite a while, I worked in government uh, six years, almost seven years. Uh, I have been approached um, to 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 think about running. You know, if you listen to to Obama's team and other successful politicians, they say the uh, the goal is not to run <laughs> to be appointed <laughs> and then run. Um, uh, but but it, it, it's certainly something that has been um, presented to me. And I think um, if I'm called to serve and if I feel that
1: calling, I, I will be there. But you definitely sure. sug- open the possibility of, of an appointment in the Biden Harris administration? That's what I heard. <laughs> uh,
2: I'm, I'm, I'm very happy at the view, um, but um, you know, uh, uh, being appointed to something is something that I've considered. And that I've been considered for not just now, but before.
3: But now as well, right?
2: Um, <laughs> it's it's something that I that that if 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 my service was 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 necessary, I, I would consider it for sure.
0: So, couple of couple of three things. Um, A couple of, one three. Is, couple of three. Couple of three things. <laughs> number number one. Uh, as a journalist, it's incumbent to point out that whenever you ask somebody whether or not they're going to run for office and they don't give you a yes or no, that means that means they're They're definitely running. They may not know what they're running for. They may not know what year they're going to run in, but but it's definitely happening. So thanks for the confirmation. <laughs> number two, um, no, number two, we appreciate that. You can come back to the podcast and you can break that news right here. Thank you
1: yes if i hear it anywhere else officially i'm gonna be so offended
0: so sick so sick (laughs) and not vote we're gonna gonna raise money money.
3: against her we're gonna draft someone into the race facts
0: facts (laughs) facts Facts. Facts. you talked about being very happy at the view but one of the things you get into in the book is the road that it took you to get to the place of happiness being in the you know being at the view um, and in that television space where you have, you know, some some freedom and, and a voice, but having not always been able to be in that place, especially in, in television and, and at networks. And, and you know, this being the show of journalists who I think have had all have all had our experiences with what that environment is like. I want you to talk about that a little bit, if you can. Actually, talk, talk all about it. Say everything you say. see.
2: It, it, it's it's always been kind of interesting to me. And I, I, I had to write about it in the book that um, I think we experience in our careers, right? My father, we say, oh, you got to work twice as hard to get half as far. Um, you know, you got to- Three times. Three times and over mm-hmm. And I, I, I often felt on my road to the view. And even when I first got there in 2016, gosh, I, I don't know if these are- microaggressions or if I'm being sensitive or Mm. but why is it that I'm the only show uh, why am I the only co-host in show history that didn't get the you welcome to the view our newest co-host I mean I never got that Um, why was it for almost a year Um, my dressing room was on the third floor uh, and it was within with all the guest dressing rooms (laughs) and uh, people and had a sink in it. So people would come in when the bathroom sink wasn't working into my personal dressing room, wash the hands and stuff. Um, everybody else nope. on the second floor.
0: Nope. Your hands going to be dirty. Nope.
2: <laughs> including, <laughs> including people that came in after me. Um, why is it that uh, the rumor was that I was the least paid co-host on the view? Now I'm not expecting Whoopi money uh, or joy. Behar money. But I'm sure as hell expecting the same or more money than some of my other co-hosts. So, you know, I was going through this thing where I know that I've had 25 years of legal experience. I know I'm like the Kizzy of ABC News because I'm doing everything all over the place. Um, But I'm being disrespected. And uh, uh, but I was trying to push that to the back of my mind. Um, and, and also working with the fear, um, and I didn't write about, I think I did write about this that, you know, one television executive told me at CNN and HLN and at Court TV, same guy, that I did not have what it took to be a national talk show host. Um, mm. And that I should stay in my lane. Yeah. And that lane was being um, a legal commentator or analyst or contributor, that I could not carry a show. Mm. And, uh, the fear that that was true um, kept me from speaking up and speaking out for myself. And also I think all of maybe some of you have experienced this and maybe some of your listeners where you, you know what's happening to you. You know you're not being given the opportunity. You know you're being treated disparately, but you almost don't want to call it out because you don't want to be the troublemaker and you don't want it to be true. Um, and so, you know, I was offered the job, uh, at the view, the season that, uh, and I was called about, I think it was about three or four days before the new season started. And I was told that I wasn't Spanish enough, uh, for what they were looking for. And so they chose Rosie Perez instead. Um, and then I went back to the view again and then kind of suffered all these indignities, and, and Mara knows this. And then come to find out, uh, you know, I get a call from a reporter who tells me that the person responsible for my career, the senior vice president of talent, um, in fact, had called me low rent um, and other things and had called other people, black people,
0: various names. Wait a minute. Now, where, where, where is just to, just for clarity, where is that person right now? Does anybody know that person got fired? OK, just want to make sure. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure. Okay, continue. Thank you. I'm a sip.
2: We're living in our power. Yep, having a sip
1: on uh, that person's behalf. Cheers! Cheers to the motherfucking. <laughs>
3: so, so uh, while we're cheersing, let let's rewind for half a step, right? Because because I because I know we want to get into this, yes. um but it's part to kind of one thing I thought was really interesting about reading your book. Uh, you know, in this in this space we talk a lot about media stuff because we know media stuff and and what was really interesting for me was that you came into media you in, and as a secondary career right like you know i grew up you no, know, when i wanted to work for newspapers or write for magazines right and, and so you got to experience this kind of as a whole new world and so you're seeing because i think sometimes when we come up in something it's harder for us to realize hey, wait, that lamp in the corner is out. Well, because it's always been out. No one would ever think to change this. Or this guy's a creep. Or this person's terrible. Because it's just, it's the furniture. It's the way it works. Versus you got this new perspective coming into media. And so before we get to where that part ended, (laughs) can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you coming into these newsroom spaces, these television channels, obviously as a a woman of color um someone not afraid to rock the boat but also someone who knew what she was talking about right you weren't some flamethrower you were someone who who was just telling the truth What, what was it like to work through that process and then obviously later on to find out that people have been talking some stuff
2: you know it was um a very humbling experience um you know i i i was at the top of the the food chain when it came to law right? You know, being a federal prosecutor and um, receiving, uh, you know, awards from the then attorney general. I mean, you know, I have been asked to head a DA's office and uh, I had been asked to uh, uh, become a judge in DC. So I, I felt like, you know, but, but there was a calling uh, that I had because I was a, you know, a journalism major and it was just, A calling that I had. And I I, I think when you have that calling, you've got to listen to it a bit. Um, But when I started, I started, you know, anchoring overnights. I started at Core TV and I got fired from my first job. I mean, CNN did not renew my contract. It's something a lot of people don't know. I wrote it about in the book. It was like the most humbling experience ever. What I learned in the newsrooms um, across the board at HLN, CNN, Fox News, Um, is that um, there are those with unearned assents. Doesn't mean they're more talented. Um, uh, Doesn't mean that they're going to work harder. Usually they don't. Um, But that if you find your um, you know, if you find your tribe, um, uh, if you find those that can support you, support your vision, um, that uh, it, it can certainly be um, a place that's uh, it, it's just a worthwhile endeavor. For me at ABC, I was so fortunate um, when I was flailing and feeling alone and treated disparately. I found Mara. I found Michael Strahan. I found Robin Roberts. I found Lindsay Davis. I found T.J. Holmes. I mean, I found a tribe of people. That were willing to not only share our salary history, share opportunities, recommend me for things, um, teach me the ropes, um, tell me the tea—just, just, just—you just, know uh, uh, commiserate. Um, and, and ultimately, collectively, get together and make requests or demands, however way you want to look at it, for the betterment of um, of, of of everyone. And um, I, I, but I, but I also found um, sort of toxic individualism, um, if I'm being honest. Um, and uh, I found it not only in my own community. Uh, I certainly found it outside of my community. When I found it in my own community, I was pretty devastated by that, because uh, alone, you know, we can survive. We, we can do okay, um, but together is really when we thrive, and I think that personal growth is sort of an attribute to the total community, and if you listen to it and you look at it that way, um, we can be so powerful, and I, I think that's what happens at ABC, because we were, we th- we, you know, we, we were able to thrive together. Um, but that toxic individualism that my father, who's from Macon, Georgia, calls it crabs in a barrel, um, where you think you have to pull other people down to get out of the barrel or to get on top.
1: And- well, I remember um, Reverend Sharpton telling me that, you know when he, we were working at MSNBC together, him telling me that the world of television was more toxic than the worlds of politics and the black church. And yeah. I thought like, "Wow, like Goddamn, like and he knows what he's talking about, and you know, you mentioned kind of that that tribe that we had. Um, I've never felt closer to my coworkers. There was very, very much in most cases kind of a, a rallying of the troops, a, a circling of the wagons. Um, I love you all dearly, like family. you know, but I do have to say, you know sonny, you there were a lot of people who knew a lot. <laughs> And to this day, you are the only one who has ever spoken up publicly for me. And when I say that you are my ride or die, and you are the truth, I will never forget that as long as I live. So when you're ready to raise money for your campaign, (laughs) whatever you, when you're ready to drive off that cliff, I'm in the car with you because nobody spoke up for me except for you. Yeah.
2: Well, as you know, it, um, It saddens me that that is true, Um, but my philosophy in life has been always that, um, you know, I don't have siblings, but you look out for your brother and your sister always. Um, It's what I teach my children, and you can't live a perfect day without doing something for someone who can't repay you. That is the truth. And for me, it it it, it is astonishing, it's mind blowing, that I would be the only one, because um, that's not what this world is about. So I thank you for the kind words, but um, that's my duty, right? That's my sisterly duty. That's that's I, I would expect. Um, that everyone would do that and it's it saddens me to this day that that's not the case.
0: Well, but part of part of what you just said, the part of what you what you both just spoke to is that this is a profession in which, there is this level of toxic individuality and 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 comp and you know competition and people who, who won't like there are there definitely are tribes, there definitely are support systems, right? There definitely are people who, who ride for you, but in a lot of ways that, you know, there are people who you would think would be allies who 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 aren't. So, you know, I'm not I, I would I would guess I'd say I'm kinda less surprised to hear Mara say that than than maybe even you are, because, you know, we all know that there are people who you know, if they won't, if they're not there to, to stab you in the back or, or push you off the cliff, they definitely won't, you know, won't stop you from falling. Um, I think, you know, I ain't going to necessarily commit the crime, but I mean, you know. and You're on your own. You're on, you're on your own. Yeah, well, because a
1: lot of
3: it, I think, is because people, almost in like a generous reading, like trying to bend over backwards on on their behalf, right, is that for a lot of people, they're like, look, this is my job. I'm here to get a paycheck right and and I love you but I'm not doing anything that's gonna you know I'll go home I'll tell my husband or my wife about all this screwed up stuff but lift my voice sign that petition do this thing
2: Next, though that
3: person could be next. Of course, and it, and it just doesn't. It, it, I mean, look, that's not how I. That's not how I conduct myself. Anyone who's worked with me in the newsroom knows I'm complaining about everything, right? But
0: <laughs> <laughs> in public,
3: <laughs> but like, <laughs> but we I, we,
0: <laughs> we had the same boss who we no longer work for, who we who we've each complained to about some of the same things. You know, so, and so oh, it's but it's yeah. it's just
3: one of those things where if, it's a, if I'm going to be here, if you want if you want to benefit from my work and my intelligence in the room and my resources and my people well if i see something that's not working i'm going to say something about it and and i and again part of it's i mean i, I think i made a decision a long time ago i mean like i love journalism i wanted to do this since a kid growing up this is always what i wanted to do And also, I made a decision I wanted to do journalism the way I was gonna do journalism, that I wanted to be me, I wanted to tell certain types of stories, I wanted to have certain impact with that work, that I'm not just here because I like doing this enough that I want this to be my job, I wanna do it the way I kinda wanna do it, and if y'all don't want me to do that, I'll go get another job. I'm good at lots of stuff. <laughs> like I can, and, and so I think that that's But not everyone. Again, not everyone has perhaps the confidence or arrogance or the or the 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 privilege to be able to say I don't need this job. I don't need this thing. I don't need. That. Well, I. I
0: think I think one of the things with that, Wes, is that well, actually, a couple of things. Number one, there's this belief in scarcity. There's this belief in the son of you, 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 you said it. And I don't even think you caught it when you said it, when you talked about like having people who will have certain conversations with you, have somebody who will talk to you about salary, right? We, we don't talk about salary amongst ourselves as a group in large part, because there's this belief that like, if one person's getting paid then there can't be another person who's getting paid. If one person's getting six figures or one person's getting seven figures, there can't be all the while we're working for billion dollar companies,
1: but they've set it up that way. None of this is an accident.
0: They have set
1: it up so that we feel like we are competing for scraps. So that we'll be grateful when we're given crumbs and we won't complain. We're competing against
2: each other, which, which is mind blowing because you know, it, it's something that I, I don't i don't know if I wrote about it in the book, but I'll never forget when I finally got the job at The View, finally, um, the real job. Um, I got a call on my cell phone from Sherry Shepard. And I don't know how she got the cell phone number, but somebody gave her the cell phone number. And she said, I hear you're coming in The View. And I said, yeah, yeah. And she was like, I need to go over my salary history with you. And I wow. need to go over... Jenny McCarthy's salary history with you um, and Elizabeth Hasselbeck's salary history with you. I was like, where? Mm. Okay. What, what, right. What? And meanwhile, I was this close to signing. When mm. she started outlining what she made over seven years and the fact that when Jenny McCarthy stepped onto the set, she was making more than Sherry had made for seven years. Wow. And was, and that offer years before was more than the offer I had been given. I was like, sis, thank you. I was like, there's a car stipend. They didn't offer me that. She was like, everybody got a car stipend. So it was that exchange of information, um, just sister to sister that I enabled me to call my agent and say, I'm sorry. Jenny McCarthy years ago got paid more than what you you're offering me. This is not a good deal, um, and, it, you know. And we need to do more of that. What I have done since Sherry did that for me, I mean, it kind of opened up my eyes. And we hear stories like Octavia Spencer said that that happened for her, and I'm actually working with Octavia on something now. Wait, um, wait,
0: wait, 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 wait! Break some news! Break some news! Break some news! Break some news! Come on, come on, come on, come on! What you got? What you got? What you got? With uh.
2: I can't, it's going to, it's coming out very shortly, actually,
1: but I, I can't. She said, it, not yet. Alex said, not yet. This is why we don't like publicists <laughs> no, on the no, recording. No. Alex, are going to
0: ruin it for everybody. Is there a mute button? Can we mute? Can we mute Alex? Can we mute Alex?
1: <laughs> From now on, it's nay on the publicist. Um, My publicist is like, <laughs> not yet, soon. It was coming
2: out soon, but you know, Octavia has this this great story about that as well. And what I have done now, since I had someone do it for me and open up my eyes, y'all know Angie Rye, y'all know Bakari mm-hmm. Sellers. When they, were, when they got their you know, uh, gigs at uh, CNN, I got their cell phone numbers. There are ways to do that. And they will tell you, I called them and I shared my salary history with them mm. when I was at CNN. They were also shocked. I explained to them how much I had been paid, who I had to, uh, you know, who they should be speaking with, um, all of that.
1: You know, and I will say, when we talk about kind of being generous and paying it forward, I texted you as soon as the podcast launched. I said, hey, will you come on? And you said anything for you, my friend. I reached out to you and said, hey, can you connect me to Soledad O'Brien? I had never exchanged a single word with Soledad O'Brien. I texted her. She responded instantly and said, yes, absolutely. I would love to come on. Everybody I have reached out to has said yes.
2: Because we love y'all. You're, this is, you're killing it. This is, this is, um, it's just amazing. You know, and kudos to you because I love it. And
3: I, well, and I think also a lot of it, I'm not
2: surprised that it's successful.
3: You know, a lot of it is, as we've been talking about though, is the scarcity of black people in media where we all know what it's, we're all a text message away, right? We all know each other. We're all half a degree. I mean, to bring that full circle, Angela Rye texted me, election week. Um, I had done, I was underground for the election. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't on camera anywhere. I was like, I'm off. I'm not doing anything. I'm not even like, I'm not shaving. I'm not like, not camera ready. I'm not doing it. And Angela texted me, her and Andrew Gillum had gotten a BET contract to do, to do a show. And it came together hyper last minute. They're planning it, they're figuring it out. And Angela texted me like, yo, we're doing this thing. Is there any way you can come on, do like a 15 minute segment on criminal justice? And I was like, and I was like, Angela, you're the only person I will put real clothes on on election day for. Like, (laughs) like, like, I'm literally like not doing anything, but like for 15 minutes, I will. I'll be in a button, whatever I wore, a sweater or a button down, and I got to you, because again, part of it's just that we're we're all so scarce that we can't, you know, we can't help but be family because there's not a
1: choice. There's not. Where are we got?
2: That type of collaboration is invaluable, I think, for for Black folks in this space.
1: Thank you for collaborating with us tonight. Um, the book is I Am These Truths. Um, I love you. I miss you. I can't wait to see you in person. We got Can a lot I of people to Can wait for you to, you to come, come back on. and announce this,
3: this political <laughs> appointment run? We'll be here.
1: <laughs> right. When you're ready, please break that news here. Don't Forget about ABC. Break it here. here. <laughs> Austin,
0: 2024. I like it.
1: Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run tell this is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.